If you have your Bibles open in Luke 5, we're going to stand together in honor of the Word of God, and we'll begin reading in verse number 17. I mentioned this in the first hour, but I will say this, our church is going forward. I thought our praise team got a lot prettier this morning, and uh, so just a major improvement on that regard. So, And uh, those of you who don't know, that was my wife singing today. So uh, um, Luke 5, verse number 17, and let's read in verse number 17 down through 26. On one of those days he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers uh, of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing now to the reading of the Word of God. Father, we ask you that you would do a work in our hearts today. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that what is said uh, would bring honor and glory to you, and that, Lord, we might see you lifted up in all things. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. You can be seated there. As we approach this text, the gospel narrative in the book of Luke Luke says that he has set out to give an orderly account of these things, and so he's giving us the insight into what takes place in the life of Jesus, and as the opening line says, one of those days, and so at this point in his ministry, this events have happened, not necessarily in chronological order of what we're seeing, but in this time period, um, this unfolds, and the Lord Jesus is as normal teaching, I believe he is at this place at the house of Peter. Um, he's gone back to this, and uh, I can't prove to you that's where it's at, but I get the sense that's where they're at again. They're at the house of Peter. He's there in the house. It's rumored about that he is in the house, and people begin to uh, gather, and they are gathered around him. And it says in verse 15, he talks about this, but now even more of the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, and he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. And so we see Jesus kind of doing ministry in this house. People are gathering around to hear him teach, and then he steps away and goes and prays, and then comes back, and he's doing this ministry over a period of days. And one of those days, so one of these events as he's doing this gathering and teaching, uh, we find this account taking place. And what we see first off is we're going to break this down. We'll see it, and and this is uh, alliterated for you, okay? Um, and so uh, we have a present power first off, and then we see a persistent people, a primary problem, a Pharisaical pundit, and piercing perception. 
And all of this takes place as we walk through the text. And so let's look first at the present power. The Bible tells us here in the text that in one of those days, in the very last line of that, verse 17, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. He was powerful to do the work he was called to do. We see it's the Lord's power. It was present power. It was healing power. But what do we see these men coming and doing in this very text is they are sitting by and they're just watching. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They're just observing. These men weren't coming, sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn from him, but rather they were sitting by to see if they could catch him in something he would say. They were sitting by to offer a a criticism of what would be said. And the whole changing of the way we would think is going to be of how we perceive the one teaching. If you perceive the one teaching as being a false teacher or someone who doesn't have your best interest in mind, you're going to listen with a far more critical ear than you would someone who believes that he has your best interest in mind. And here they're coming, sitting by, and there's curiosity, no doubt, that is there, and then there's criticism that is going on. You know, and if our relationship with the Lord is wrong, then everything else is going to be wrong. Everything else is going to be wrong. If the heart is not right, nothing is right. If the relationship here is not right, it's not going to be right here. The Word of God's not going to make sense for us. Trials won't make sense to us. Nothing makes sense if our relationship with Him is not right. I liken it to our parents. How many of you ever felt like maybe your parents at some point or another were just too hard on you? Anybody like that? Okay, a few of you, all right. You feel like, man, that's just not fair. I can't believe you treated me this way. And how many of you look back at those very instances when you were a teenager, you thought they were too hard on you, and now you're like, man, thank God for a mom and dad. And those very moments that you felt like were too harsh, now you think were their grace. And it was God's wisdom to place them in your life and to put those boundaries on you. And we all feel that way. And I I can tell you in one instance in my own life of where that took place, and I remember thinking, this is just not fair. You know, how come I can't have the truck anymore? This is not fair. And I remember being so angry at that. And yet looking back at it now, thinking, thank God for a mom and dad who would say no and set up boundaries around us. And we see the Lord doing the same thing, is that moments of our life that come in and he's teaching something to us to expose something in us. And we feel like when our hearts are not connected to him, we don't feel like he's being gracious. We feel like he's being very unfair to us. But when our hearts are in tune with him, we can see God's grace even in the sorrow, that he has purpose for that. So not only we see his present power to heal, we also see persistent people. So the account revolves around this, and we're going to draw some inferences from this. Uh, But the, the main story here is not about the four men that are bringing the man to Jesus. In Luke's account, he's he's highlighting something else for us. Though there's great instruction here on the fact that these four men are willing to overcome obstacles to get people to Jesus. And they're willing to go to the extreme to bring people to Jesus. And so here this man is paralyzed. He's not able to walk. And we're bringing him to Jesus. The other gospels tell us that he is born of four, that he's carried by four people, and he's being carried in. And they get to the house where Jesus is, and the crowd is all around the house. They can't get into him. There's no place to get into him. The King James says they could not draw nigh to him because of the press. And I remember reading that as a kid, and I'm like, man, the press has been a problem for a long time, haven't they? Um, 
That's not exactly what that word meant. It's talking about the crowd that was around the house. It was keeping people on the outside and holding people from getting to Jesus because he was so in demand at that moment. They said, we're not going to be thwarted by the fact that we can't get in there. And so they said, we're going to go up on the roof. And they they raised him up on the roof. And I I, I don't know what this guy must have been thinking, but I imagine he would be a little bit nervous anyway um, if somebody started lifting you up onto a roof. But they get him up on the roof in this bed and they tear the hole in the roof and this is not something that happened in a very quick moment. It's not like they had a hatch they opened up. But they're tearing back the tiles of the roof. And no doubt, wherever Jesus was in the house teaching, the debris began to fall. And people were getting stuff dropped on their head as they're, and dust and everything is coming through. And then all of a sudden, these guys get a hole open. And, and they're like, hey, grab that corner. No, no, hey, I got this side. You get that side. And, uh, and then they start lowering the guy down. And here comes this paralyzed guy down in front of Jesus and, of course, we pick up when they see this, and, and they, they drop him down before it. And when, verse number 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. We see this account unfolding of these men of persistent faith. <coughs> men of faith bringing people to Jesus. <coughs> Critics do not. Critics are not putting people to Jesus, but men of faith bring people to Jesus. You know, the, the primary problem here is not that the man is paralyzed either. So these men are bringing Jesus in. They believed who he was. They're coming in to make a difference in the life of this man. And so now we come to the primary problem. And Jesus, if we stopped in verse number 20 and we didn't go any further in the text, we've already seen the greatest miracle in this text. The greatest miracle has already happened. And if we drew a line here and the rest of this story was not uh, rendered for us, we would already have seen God do his greatest work. When he looks at this man, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. He looks directly at him. And, and by the way, the wise physician always goes to the root of the problem. He doesn't stay on the surface. And too often, if we're not careful, we are very, we are very uh, comfortable staying on the surface of the issue. <clears throat> we're comfortable staying where uh, the, the exterior, as long as this is cared for and it looks well, then I'm okay. <clears throat> Can you imagine going to a doctor and you're like, you know, something's wrong with my heart, doctor. And he's like, oh, that's all right, you probably just need a bigger Band-Aid. Well, a Band-Aid's not going to fix my heart. No more than just fixing the need of this man's paralyzed leg is going to forgive his sins. And so Jesus looks at the man and he says, your sins be forgiven you. We see the pharisaical pundits on display now. Verse 21 and 22, they thought they had the edge on everything, do they not? And, and all through Jesus' ministry, they're hounding him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 21, began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Man, how dare you talk this way? And they're, they're, they're not confronting him boldly right now, but they're kind of whispering in the background. They're kind of sitting off in the back going, oh, man, can, did, you, did you hear what he said? I mean, this is blasphemous. Are you going to say something? I think we should say something to him. We should call him out. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How, do, how does he get away with this? And they're, they're rambling. And, and by the way, we would agree with their statement, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. No one can forgive sins. And I'm glad to report to you this morning, there is no person you need to go to to have your sins absolved. We go to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ to the Father, and we find forgiveness directly through his atoning work, not through another man, not through a church, not through a pastor. We don't do it through religious rites. Everything was paid for at the cross. Amen? 
And we go directly to him for our forgiveness. And he says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they have the right point, but they're missing who the person is they're talking to. Now, for those who would say to us, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, they need to read this text of Scripture because he very clearly lays it out for them. He puts it right on the spot. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To attribute this to yourself is to, is to claim to be God. When Jesus stood and says, thy sins be forgiven thee, he is making a declaration of his deity in front of everybody that's listening at that moment. And he's not done making the declaration either. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The piercing perception. Now, when I see this, Jesus knows their thoughts. He says in verse number 22, he said, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Now, <clears throat> I don't know by the wording of this that we necessarily have to put a supernatural act on this. Um, if you've ever been in a room where you said something that didn't sit well with somebody, you can generally read it pretty quick, right? You get the whole look of the, the eyes kind of drop, the head goes down, somebody's murmuring back and forth, and you kind of know, hey, that didn't go well, you know? And whatever it is that you're talking about at that moment, you can read the room. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing. Maybe these men are in the back corner and they're just kind of doing the, the little chit-chat with each other. And one leans over to the other and is like, hey, did you hear what he said? He said forgive his sins. And who can forgive sins but God? And this guy's blaspheming. And maybe they're just murmuring back there and there's a little rumbling in that section. And Jesus says, hey, guys, why, why are you, what's going on back there? Why does that bother you? And he calls them out. But I would say also it's important to remember that he does see our hearts. And he does know exactly what's going on in the hearts of man. And by this morning, that, that ought to do two things for us. That ought to give us great encouragement and great pause at the same time. Don't ever think that you're going to hide a sinful heart from a holy God. He knows what's going on in our hearts, but then that ought not to leave us in despair either. Because he knows my heart, he knows everything about him, about me, and yet he still calls me to himself. Yet he still draws me in to fellowship with him. So he knows me, and yet he loves me. And that's an amazing thing, because ultimately, I think the human condition is afraid. If people really knew me, they wouldn't really love me. But he really knows me, and he really loves me. He loves me as I am, that he might make me into the image of his son through his death, burial, and resurrection. So he knew what was going on. And let me just say as a side note here this morning, when we confess our sins, confess them. Lay them out before God. Tell God what you've done in your heart. Tell God what you've done. He already knows. He's not going to be shocked by it, all right? He knows what we've done. He knows the wickedness of our soul. And confess it before God and let him offer the forgiveness that is there when we confess. Confess, yes, forsake. He knows what's going on. He pierces into the moment. He knew their thoughts. Nothing was hidden from him. I can picture him looking back and seeing them kind of murmuring. And, and I, I've been blessed in ministry for all these years to just be able to preach to people who enjoyed uh, the word of God and had a love for the word of God. And I thank God for that. Even in Ohio, I just enjoyed that. But there were occasions where you would go to preach. And I, I can think of one brother in particular. I'd get up to preach on a Sunday morning. And he'd sit back there, sit just like this, and he would just look at me. And I would say something he didn't like, and he'd be. And I knew 
I knew just as sure he was going to wait till everybody left. And as soon as everybody left, Pastor, here's what you did wrong today. And I'd get a list of things he didn't like about the sermon or a list of points that he thought I was out of line. And, uh, and I remember I remember I'd get to the point sometimes where he, I'd see him pulling up to church and I'd be like, oh, man, he's here again. That's a horrible way for a pastor to be, all right? Now, let, let me say very clearly here, I believe those that encourage and those that criticize are of God's grace, that God allows both. Because here's the fact, nobody's perfect. And every now and then everybody needs a, that ain't right. That didn't line up. And so we can thank God for his grace on both sides. And yet Jesus is finding this all through his ministry where they're, they're launching attacks at him. They're criticizing him. Here they accuse him of blasphemy. So we see the piercing perception. Now we see the powerful proof. This is the whole crux of Luke's account now. We've gone through the, the window dressing, if I could put it that way, of the story account of what set up this discussion. And the men had, by faith, lowered, Jesus, lowered this man down to Jesus. The man has been healed uh, or forgiven of his sins. And Jesus now confronts the men. He said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Uh, why is this going on? And in verse number 23, which is easier? He asked the question, which one's easier? For me to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. So which one is a harder command? Which one is going to be seen by the people here more? And the fact is, if I say to you, your sins are forgiven, nobody can see whether that's happened or not. Nobody can tell whether your sins have been forgiven. Man's eyes can't see the record in heaven right now. They can't see your heart and what's going on in there. But God can see your heart, and he's done the bigger miracle already by confessing that the man's sins have been forgiven, that by faith he had been made clean. But he looks at him, he says, so you determine which one's easier. And obviously, if he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, that's a bigger deal. Because everybody can measure whether or not he has power to do that. Because if he says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he doesn't get up, then he doesn't have power. But we already see that power was present to heal. Power was present there. And so Jesus looks at him, and he says, you judge which one's easier. Then he says, but so that you, Pharisees and scribes, may know that the Son of Man, here he is confessing who he is, that he is truly the Son of Man, hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And so he looks at them and he says, so that you will understand, I say to you, take up your bed and go home. And the man immediately, the Bible says, and immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And so what does Jesus do? He does the external work of healing the man to prove that he had power to do the internal work of forgiving the man's sins. And he puts on display that he is the son of man, that he is God because he has power to forgive sins and to raise this man to walk again. All this is done on display. So, amazement seized them all, the Bible says, verse 26, and they glorified God and we're filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amazing. They stand in awe. But notice here, <clears throat> when Jesus says, thy sins be forgiven thee, they had already seen the most extraordinary thing. But they're not near as impressed with that as when the man takes up his bed and goes home. 
when he does that, then they're like, wow, can you believe that? And I, I think we can get so overwhelmingly impressed when God takes care of an external problem. And we're very underwhelmed by the fact that God takes care of the root problem. The root problem is what was causing the problem. Now, we're not saying that somehow or another this man had done a specific sin, and that's why he was paralyzed. But we are saying because of the sinful condition of man, this man was under this this, uh, infirmity that caused him to be uh, paralyzed. So, Jesus has looked at the root of the issue, not just the fruit of the issue. Too often we look to the fruit and we want God to deal with the fruit, but we're not interested in God dealing with the root of the problem. The root of this man's problem was that he was a sinner and he was condemned before a holy God. The results of being a sinner is that we are susceptible to sickness and disease and to violating the law of God because we are sinners by nature. All of that is the fruit of the issue, but ultimately I don't need just behavioral modification. I need heart transformation. Thoreau said this, for every thousand that are hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one hacking at the roots. And Jesus goes right to the root of the issue. And this morning, if you have a sin problem, you have a heart problem. The ultimate issue that we deal with is the heart of the issue, and Jesus is going to the issue. You see, these Pharisees were okay with physical healing, but not with spiritual change in the man. You see, Jesus speaks first to the spiritual need of the man. The real need of the man was down in his heart. Now, let me make something extremely clear as a church. I'm excited about us giving uh, food to people who are in need of food and and clothing the person who is naked and taking water to people who need it. And I want to take mission trips to places and pour resources in the hand of our missionaries. And we have did that in the last several weeks that they could have what they need. Let me say this. If we fix their teeth, heal their body, feed their body, and clothe their body, but we never preach Jesus to them, we are not leaving them better off, but worse off. The reason we live in America so comfortable, and I I think of the area we're in today, in this region of our our nation, uh, the idea of having a soup kitchen doesn't meet the need. People are comfortable. We're wealthy, we're cared for, we're comfortable, we don't have any physical needs, and the danger of that is we think we don't have a spiritual need. And that's why Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Because you can't see your need because you think you got it all together. And Jesus looks right past the issue. He said his need is not to walk. His need is to have his sins forgiven. And I challenge you this morning as we go with the gospel, and go we should. Don't hear me say that those things are opposed to each other. We ought to go generously giving, generously meeting the needs. But as we give the need and we meet the needs, that we would preach Jesus to those whose needs we meet. That we go with the gospel. Jesus speaks first to the spiritual need of the man. When Christ changes others, this exposes the fact that I need to change. That's why I think so often they have a problem with Jesus changing and transforming others' lives. It exposes them. See, when Jesus starts working in you, then I start getting convicted because, well, I see a change in you and you're doing things differently. And man, I'm convicted by that. No one minds if Christ does a work on the external state of a man. Just don't change his spirituality to where it would convict me. 
And I, I, I want to remind you again, this world is not going to persecute Christianity because we feed the poor and we give water to those in need and we clothe the, those that need clothes. Christianity will be under fire because we say that you are a sinner condemned before a holy God and without Jesus Christ there is no hope. The problem is not hacking at the leaves. The problem is Christianity goes to the root. And he gets down to where it is. And he confesses in me that makes us uncomfortable. It makes this world uncomfortable. I think of the story of the maniac of Gadara. You know the story. And this is just a few chapters ahead in Luke 8. And when we go there, you see uh, Jesus comes to the, 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 uh, to the area of the Gadarenes. And he gets off the boat. And this man who's possessed of many demons comes and falls down in front of him. And, and Jesus then commands the demons to go out. And they enter into the swine up on the hill. And the swine run off the cliff. And he gives a little scenario of what took place with this man. For oftentimes, he would be in the tombs, and he lived in the tombs, and he would cut himself with, with stones, and he, and he would be chained, and he would break the fetters and the chains, and nobody could restrain him. And they were doing everything they could to put external restraints upon him. And they were doing all they could to constrain it. But here's the reality. All the external restraints in the world don't do anything for the heart of man. Now, I, I want to thank God for government. It is a good gift of God. And God, people said, yeah, if you, don't need, if you don't know that, you need to read your Bible, all right? It's a blessing. And you say, Pastor, there's a lot of things in our government I don't like. Welcome to the human race. Welcome to every nation that's ever been ever on the face of the earth. And we can stand back and point a finger, I don't like this or I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. Fine. But let's thank God that we have some restraint upon evil. And God has given the sword to those that are in authority that they may restrain evil. And we can thank God for the work that's being done in that area. But make no mistake, the government and laws, they can restrain men's evil actions. But only God can transform men's evil's heart. It is only the gospel that will change the heart of a man. And it's only the gospel that will take a maniac and make him into one who is clothed and his right mind at the feet of Jesus. And I challenge this morning to consider that. But look what they did. He comes in verse number 35 of 8. You don't have to turn there. But in, in Luke 8, 35, they come running out to see this crazy man who had been running through the tombs and cutting himself and doing all this. And he said when they came out to see what was done, and they're running out, they came to Jesus and found the man who the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And these last four words always get me, and they were afraid. Of what? A clothed man in his right mind at the feet of Jesus? Why has that got you afraid? You know why I had them afraid? It's because Jesus had already come in and messed up their economic system by killing their pigs. And they were comfortable with the crazy man as long as Jesus didn't mess with their pocketbook. You see, Jesus was coming and dealing with the root, not just the fruit. Jesus wanted to get to the heart of the issue, and they were afraid. And what do they do? Get out. Get out. I don't want him here anymore. And Jesus is pushed out of that region. Jesus went to the root of the issue. He always goes to the root of the issue. You see, we like Christianity to deal with our bitter fruit that sin brings, but don't mess with the root that causes the fruit. You know, Jesus, I, you know, I need more money, but I don't want you to deal with me about a heart of giving. Jesus, I, I, I need better health, but don't deal with my gluttony. Yeah, I said that. Um, 
Jesus, I, I want you to take my drug addiction away, but don't deal with the relational pains behind the drug addiction that drove me to it in the first place. Don't deal with the emptiness that's in my heart. Uh, you know, Jesus, I need more strength, but don't deal with me uh, on being a service to others. God, give me influence because I don't have influence, and so fix this. Keep, but, but don't deal with me about being a servant instead of a master. God, give me good, obedient, well-mannered kids. But whatever you do, don't really transform their heart and send them into something that would take them away from me or send them into gospel ministry. Because I'm, I'm okay with God giving me obedient kids, but don't give me missionary kids. Don't really get down to the heart of things. Don't give me kids that really have a heart to go and do something to change the world around me. And so we pray, God, deal with the, fr the root, the fruit of everything that's going on. Fix my relationships. Fix my marriage. Fix my children. Fix this. Fix this. But don't deal with the pride that's in my heart. And so we don't want God to deal with the, the root of the issue. God, give me a raise at work, but don't fix my greed. God, give me a job, but don't fix my laziness. And we don't want God to get down to the root of the issue. We just want God to deal with the fruit that's out here. Deal with all the manifestations of it. But when God gets past those things, there is generally a presented problem and a root problem. When you go to the book of Ephesians, you can see this in your homework sometime, but in Ephesians 4 and 5, Jesus talks to us, or the Apostle Paul writes to us uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, hey, there's some things you need to stop doing and start doing. And he goes through a list of things and he says, hey, uh, those of you uh, that are lying, stop lying and speak the truth. And somebody asked in a counseling training I took several years ago, he said, when is a liar not a liar? And I'm like, when he stops lying. He's like, no, when he's a truther. See, the issue is not just to get us to stop lying. The issue is to get us to speak the truth. And why do we miss this? Why do we, why we hold to dishonesty? And I think it is, for we are members one of another. The reason why we lie and hide is we don't truly believe we're connected to one another. We don't believe we truly have community in Christ and that we are safe in that community with Christ. And so we're missing the truth. And so the root issue is that we want to be isolated and keep things to ourselves and we want to build walls around ourselves and so we lie to hide. We lie to obscure and we don't want to go to what God does of speaking the truth. Well, God, take the pain of this away, but don't deal with the community issue behind it. I think of unbridled anger. Be angry, he says, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. I, I think the root cause of uncontrolled anger is that we have no rest in God. We don't believe God's really in control. We don't believe that God can handle it, and so we can't lay down our sword because God is not able to deal with it. And so we have to keep our sword in our hand. We have to keep our shield up all the time. And the root issue is that I don't have a trust in a holy God. And so I have to be the avenger of myself. And we look through this and there's more you could look through. I'll look at theft. I'll look at two more. But he talks about though that stole, steal no more. He said, rather let him labor. So why? That he may be able to save a lot of money. No, that's not what Ephesians teaches. Let him labor that he may have to give to those that are in need. So what's the root cause behind theft? Greed. Selfishness. It's, we used to say when I was growing up, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Yeah? 
Don't let anybody get it. And so we, we hoard it all to ourselves. And see, here's the thing. That's why a, a thief is not going to be solved by a job. How many of you know there are many people that have jobs that are still thieves? Many hardworking people that are still thieves. And they thieve, and they thieve, and they thieve. And we say, well, God, here's the problem. This thief over here needs to get better morals and get a job, and that'll solve his problem. That's not going to solve his problem. That's just going to change the manifestation of the fruit. But Jesus has got to get to the heart of the issue, and the heart of the issue is you have a heart of greed, because you can be greedy whether you're a thief or whether you got a job. And he said, I want you to have work that you may have give. And the whole transformation is a transformation of heart that changes the whole way we look at it. And that's what the gospel does, the last one. He talks about in chapter 5, covetousness and lust and envy and sexual sin. He said, and he ties it all in together in the idea of covetousness. He said, you know why you deal with sexual sin? is because you covet and you're greedy and you, you have this lust for something that is not yours. And he said, you know what the root cause of that is? Unthankfulness. You're not thankful for what you've been given. And you don't believe God has given you what you need. And so we don't give thanks to what God has poured out on us. And so we covet our neighbor's possessions. We covet our neighbor's wife. We covet all these things that don't belong to us because we have an unthankful heart. And he gets to the root of the issue. And that's what he's calling us today is get to the root. Christ is not satisfied with disposing of our rotten fruit. He wants to change the root that he may bring about good fruit. He doesn't want to just say, okay, get rid of your anger and your wrath and your malice. But I want you to also have love and joy and peace and long-suffering. And I want to move you into a life of productive fruit. See, when I am unwilling to deal with the root of my condition... I'm going to stay mostly the same that I am right now. Primarily the same. So this man goes to Jesus. The four men take him. They put him on a bed. They lower him out to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, take up your bed, go home. And he takes up his bed. He goes home. He's healed of his paralysis. And he's able to walk now. And you might say, man, that was transformational. I would say very little has changed. Before he was a crippled sinner. Now he's a walking sinner. But the fundamental reality of him is he's still a sinner. What he needed was his sins to be forgiven. He needed his heart healed before his body was healed. The body being healed, it was just a demonstration to hard-hearted men there that Jesus had power to heal the heart. And so he does so. I think a lot of times what we do is we spend so much time in our moralistic thinking that we think that somehow or another straightening up the things that are out of place is going to fix the problem. It's akin to seeing a house on the edge of a cliff and it's about to fall off the cliff and the foundation is shaking underneath it as it's about to fall over the edge and we're running around the house straightening pictures. Oh, that picture's out of line. Let's straighten that up. Oh my goodness, can you see that table slid? Pull that table back over. Where Somebody give me a hand with a china cabinet. It's about to fall over. Fix the foundation. And the fruit of having the foundation right will fix the things in the home. And here's the reality this morning. We need a foundational change. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't care how many moral uh, new leaves you turn over, you are going to die in your sins. Because you can't be moral enough to fix the brokenness of your foundation. Christian, this morning, the gospel is not behavioral modification. It is heart transformation. He's coming in to give us a new nature. And in giving us a new nature, we walk differently. But it's from the new nature, not for the new nature.
So every physical conflict then can reveal a spiritual lesson to me. Now this is interesting because I think we're good with the big things. When the news, the doctor gives us a bad report, God, what are you trying to teach me here? God, show me what I need to learn. And we, we, we kind of see those big events as things that, that gets my attention, right? But then oftentimes it's the flat tire or it's I lost my keys again. You know, I don't know if you've ever been there where you're screaming through the house, has anybody seen my keys? And then they look at you, it's in your hand. <laughs> you're like, thank you. Um, and you know, I've been rude for the last five minutes looking for my keys and I'm carrying them. Here's the thing. I believe God sends personalities into our life to not only expose them, but to expose us. You, you all know you've had that same personality at every job you've worked at that just drives you up a wall. That's not a mistake. God sends annoying people, remember? God sends those people not just for them, but for you. Because see, here's the thing. When I respond in anger to your sinful behavior, I've still sinned. And what is it revealing? It's revealing that I need transformation. And Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I do, I shouldn't do. And he said, I wrestle with that. But it's the ongoing work of God refining my heart and pulling out the flesh that is in me. And he exposes what's annoying around me that he might expose me of what's going on in me. And so every physical conflict can reveal a spiritual lesson for me. And when, I've, when I have had a root change, when there's been the change of the root in my heart, then I desire to point people to the only one who can fix the heart. You know, I think a lot of times Christians that have done, I, I want to put Christians in quotation mark. Maybe we should even stop using that word. Christian is not what they call themselves. It's what other people called them. But believers, people who confess Christ as their Savior, and they, they stand upon the truths of what we would call Christianity, and they believe that. And when their first motivation is to fix the morality of people around them, I wonder if we're missing the gospel altogether. We shouldn't be shocked that sinners sin. That's what sinners do. They sin because they're sinners. The miraculous work is not that sinners sin, but that somehow or another, by God's grace, sinners change. That's the miracle, and it's only done through the gospel of Jesus Christ, changing the heart. So how do we deal with the root? Just give a couple of observations. I think we should listen to find help, not fault. As we listen, God, what are you teaching me? As we read the word of God, God, what are you teaching me? Be careful when you read the Bible and you only think of the needs of other people. I've had often people come to me after a service and say, Pastor, I really appreciate that sermon. I wish so-and-so was here. They really needed that. I think we're missing the point. Come knowing that you cannot change you. Only the gospel can change you. You're not going to reform yourself into a better person. Because even if you, on the external, are looking better, the heart hasn't changed. So you say, well, pastor, I was a thief before, and now I'm working, and I'm paying taxes, and I'm doing so much better. 
But has there been a heart change? Has there been a transformation on the inside? Our righteousness is but filthy rags. Let him work in you so that he can work through you. I said, I've said this several times here. Christianity is not about just putting good people on display for how good they are. But it is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That we were hopeless without Jesus. There was nothing good in us. And when we exalt ourselves in this moral state that we've done well, we're missing the point of the gospel. We have come short of the glory of God, and the only good about us is Christ. We sang it, Brother Jesse sang it for us, all I have is Christ. I gave this story several years ago, and I'll remind you of it now because it fits this so well. Years ago, I had, uh, we had moved into a new house. We were down in southern Ohio, and um, there was a, a tool shed, and then behind the tool shed, there was an old well. They were no longer on the well, but the blocks were still there for the well, and it had grown up, the weeds had grown up around the well, and I was going to cut it down and get it cleaned up. And, and uh, so I was out there working with it, and there's just a bunch of stuff around that had to be cleaned up. And so I, I'm mowing the grass and getting that area cleaned up and make it look like something. And, and I had the, the mower, and I kind of went into some taller stuff, you know, shortcut. I didn't want to weed eat first, and I just pushed it in there real fast to see if I could knock it down. And when I did, the blades hit something, and it was, you know, and I pulled it back real quick. And um, when I pulled it back, there was a piece of metal sticking up out of the ground. And the blades had kind of hit it and made it shiny. And so I'm like, oh, man, i got to get that out of there. So I started trying to pull it up, and I couldn't get it up. Got a shovel and started digging. And when I got it up out of the ground, it was a big uh, vice like you would mount on a workbench. And, uh, you, know, you know, the vice, you crank things down and hold them in place while you're working on it. And the thing was just covered with dirt and mud and gunk, and it was just nasty. And I just grabbed it, threw it in on the workbench, and I said, I'll deal with it later. I'll probably take it to the scrapyard, you know, when I, when I take some scrap stuff off, maybe later. So I threw it in there and forgot about it. A couple of days went by, and I went out and looked at it. And I thought, I wonder if I could get that thing to move and work. And I'm like, I don't know, probably not. But I, I took it out in the yard, and I sprayed it off with a water hose, and mud's all coming out of it in chunks, you know. And I, I hit it with a hammer a few times and knocks things off of it. And, and I got a bunch of dirt off of it, and I'm like, I still, nothing turned, you know. The, it wouldn't spin to tighten anything down. And, and it spun on its base, but it wouldn't spin anyway. Nothing I did would work. And so I took the thing, and I laid it on the workbench, and I just grabbed a can of PB Blaster, and I should get, a, I should get some kind of marketing thing for this. That stuff works, all right. Uh, but I took PB Blaster, and I just sprayed the thing down with PB Blaster and just soaked it with it and left it sit came back a few days later, and, and uh, man, you know, all the stuff was running out of it. The dirt and rust was starting to come off of it. And I took a hammer to it, and I hit it, and when I hit it, that, the arm spun, and it started threading. And I'm like, oh, well, there's some hope here, you know. And so I hit it again and started turning it past. It got a little bit further. So then I got a wire brush out, and I started using the wire brush on it and scraping it off and running that wire brush up and down those gears to where then the gears started spinning and the thing started moving a little bit. And then I, I got the, the, my air, air hose out and was spraying stuff off. Finally, the bottom of it came off. I was able to clean that out. Got, I got a, a smaller brush and started scrubbing the different areas. Got the wire brush on it, cleaned the whole thing up. Paint started showing up. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe there's still paint on this thing. And so I got it all cleaned up, and, man, and I, I worked on this thing for several days over a period of time. And before long, I got everything back to full motion. The thing would spin on its bottom, and the top would tighten up. And, man, I, I, got, a, I got a perfect tool, man, and I got it all cleaned up, oiled and ready to go. And I carried it inside and put it in my wife's china cabinet. And I did not do that, right? You know I didn't do that. 
But see, I think that's what we think God's doing with us. God lifted us out of our sin and he's cleaned us up and he's made us look better and presentable to society and now he wants to put us on display for how good we are. No. God created you for a purpose, for work that he called you for and he wants to put you in the work, not put you on display. You see, the tool doesn't point to itself. The tool points to the one who made it. And the workman who is working in us is Jesus Christ. And we are vessels for his glory, not for our glory. So we put that thing on the workbench and we put it to work. And you know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to take rotten sinners like you and I, who are broken, paralyzed by sin, and deal with the root issue. Then the fruit issue takes care of itself over time. And he wants to put us in work for his glory. So let me ask you this morning, what's the root issue that we're not dealing with? What's in the heart that's not be dealt with? If this morning you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, no amount of moral or religious behavior is going to fix that. It is only through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together this morning.